Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. I'm excited to invite you into a conversation with Bonnie Smith Whitehouse, English professor and author of Seasons of Wonder, Making the Ordinary Sacred Through Projects, Prayers, Reflections, and Rituals. This handbook walks us through each week of the year with thoughtful, guided reflections to help us engage with the presence of God in our everyday world. I really enjoyed reading Bonnie's creative ideas, and it turned out to be even more energizing to have a conversation with her. If you had been there, you would have seen the way Bonnie's whole face lights up as she is talking about this book and the way we can shape our days to deepen our connection with God and our wonder at God's created world. Bonnie and I also spend a few minutes talking about her professional calling into academia, and I've included a little bonus at the end of the podcast where she offers wise advice for parents with young children. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Bonnie Smith Whitehouse, Ph.D., is a writer and professor who studies storytelling, creativity, contemplation, and wonder. She is the author of the Nautilus Award winner, Afoot and Lighthearted, A Journal for Mindful Walking, and Kickstart Creativity, 50 Prompted Cards to Spark Inspiration. A lifelong Episcopalian, she has spent the last 20 years as a lay leader of St. Augustine's Episcopal Church at Vanderbilt University. Bonnie is Professor of English and Director of the Honors Program at Belmont University, and she lives in Nashville with her family. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, Seasons of Wonder, but first I'd love to hear about your life as a professor. You've been teaching for over 15 years, I think, and can you just tell us about your... <laughs> I've been at Belmont for 20 years. And um, before that, I just was a TA in grad school. So um, I'm, yeah, I've been teaching since really for 25 years. Wow. As a, a tenure track professor or tenured professor, 20 years. Okay. Wow. Wow. So tell us a little bit about your path into academia. How did you, how did you find that that was your calling in life, your work that you were to do, and what have been some of the the gifts and the struggles along the way? Such a great question. And I would say it has been part of my calling in life. Um, I, I think I'm still a work in progress. And um, I, so I went to college just absolutely loving writing and literature and found a wonderful sort of home as an English major. I mm-hmm. loved uh, poetry, short stories. I loved creative writing, still do. And um, decided to go on into graduate study in literature and creative writing. 
And um, throughout that experience, becoming a grad student, became, we started teaching and started working in the writing center and really enjoyed and loved that experience of working with writers and thinking about the nuts and bolts of how people grow as writers and how that happens. So I then went into doctoral study in writing and rhetoric hmm. or writing studies, as the field is typically called at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I um, am a, a woman who's from the South, uh, grew up in Tennessee and did my doctoral work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and um, just really loved learning about what I um, eventually came to call the the role of the common reader or the idea that um, you know reading is something liberatory for many people it's a it's a activity that can liberate us as well as entertain us hmm. I trace the tradition back through African-American women's literacy movements through um, uh, times through um, you know what it meant to be an enslaved reader and how reading the Bible could become an act of liberation and an act of um, sort of rebellion, even because reading was forbidden, of course, for enslaved mm -hmm. people. And I traced that up through the incredible movement of Oprah's book club and how oh, Oprah wow. has encouraged um, readers to read for life change mm -hmm. and life liberation. And so I learned a lot about the tradition of African-American women's uh, literacy movements in the United States, especially as they were tied to Christianity and trace that up through Oprah's book club as my dissertation topic. So it's sort of this amalgamation of um, reading as uh, spiritual, reading as political, reading as um, sort of, of course, something that we do for our you know, life's work uh, to gain employment, to become financially successful, but that reading has so many other dimensions to it. So I am also interested in how that works with writing and how writing and um, especially writing in the 21st century is, um, gosh, it's like we are all published writers all the time. Right. We're all publishing things online all day, all the time. Um, and it's it's a revolutionary to think about how writing has has changed. So those are some of my scholarly interests. Um, I began um, in 2003 on the tenure track at Belmont University, and it has been just a delightful and wonderful place to work. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that I've been encouraged and allowed to grow. I wasn't, I was hired to do one thing and I still do it to an extent, but I've also been um, allowed to change. I'm not teaching exactly the same classes that I taught when I was first hired. Um, I'm not publishing exactly the same sorts of things that I began publishing when I was hired. And I really appreciate that about um, my work. When I first was hired, I remember um, John Payne, who was a tenure track or a tenured professor, mentor of mine explaining to me that he was hired to teach Southern literature, but that, that he had developed an incredible interest in Japan and that the institution had encouraged that. And that gave me a lot of freedom as a young tenure track professor. And I, I try to tell my, um, my tenure track colleagues who I'm 
mentoring or getting to know, you know, I try to, I try to pass that down to them because I think there's a lot of freedom in that when you're hired in your twenties or your early thirties, there's so much life still to live. And I, I think, I hope this ethic comes out in my book as well. You know, I think the world is so full of so many incredible things to learn and that shouldn't halt when you are hired into a tenure track position. So I, I thoroughly appreciate the institution that I work for mm. uh, nurturing that in me and in others. So let's dive into your book. Um, it is entitled Seasons of Wonder, Making the Ordinary Sacred Through Projects, Prayers, Reflections, and Rituals. And the cover copy, I thought, gave a very helpful description, and they they describe it as a 52-week interactive devotional that helps families and friends discover God and fleshed in the world. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about your hopes for the ways readers will engage with this book? Absolutely. I hope it's the kind of book that is used. I have discovered uh, through learning about the Enneagram that I'm a two and I'm somebody who's always trying to be helpful. And so <laughs> this is probably a story for another day, but um, how that filters into my writing and my hopes for my books is that I hope they are like dog-eared and have mm -hmm. underlining and post-it notes all through them. And that, you know, the family, that families and friends and people have their hands on them. I want them to be off the shelves, on the desks or the dinner table and used. And so um, that's one thing. I, I hope it's the kind of book that you reach for um, when you're trying to just sort of catch a breath or incorporate contemplative learning and activities into your life or into your classroom or into your friendships or families or with your partner. So um, I hope it's a useful text, a text that helps us think about God as not a big old man on a cloud, but God as something, someone who, who, with whom we can fall in love, with whom we are sharing earth with. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of, part of my big hope for the book. You know, the, the legacy of the book will be one, something that's useful um, in a world where, you know, we're surrounded by text. I want this to be the kind of book that people are using and, and finding that um, resonates with them and helps them, you know, sort of think deeper about what it means to be Christ-centered or a follower of Christ or a follower of the way, as mm -hmm. I write about. Yeah, I, I, I really think it is. Um, it seems like the kind of book that one can reach for when you're hoping to step out of the, the fast lane of, you know, going through your daily routine and getting things done and but instead taking a moment to breathe and settle in and connect with the the real spiritual activity that is happening all around us all the time and i wanted to um ask so the you mentioned families and communities and this kind of book is often Geared, geared mainly toward families, but in your writing, it really seems like it could be used by friends or other small communities as well. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I wanted this to be the book that could certainly be used by families, but also families of choice or roommates or 
you know, um, a group of professors who were meeting for brown bag lunch every week, um, Sunday school class, all sorts of different kinds of groups who could come together. Great. Well, and I really, you know, it's funny. I read the whole thing, which you're not really supposed to sit down and read the whole thing in one, oh, in I'm one go. But... Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. But it was, it was so much fun. And really right from the beginning, I was immediately grabbed by your introduction and the words you use to describe God and our spiritual experiences. And you talk about the way God is a surprise and you focus on curiosity and wonder and our human embodiment. And your words I found to be really refreshing, especially coming from someone with your background as a professor um, of English and, you know, just in, in the world of academia. So I'd love to hear about the way someone who lives life in the university world can approach God in this playful way. Right. Sure. Well, I, um, I've been learning about and studying metaphors since I was in fifth grade, mm -hmm. <laughs> as perhaps other readers and listeners will, will be familiar with the idea of metaphor. Um, and there are so many ways that metaphors construct our realities. George Lakoff has written a lot about this, and um, I'm really interested in the metaphors or the methods of comparison that we have used throughout time to think about God. Hmm. Um, the patriarchal ones are the ones that really have seemed to stick for lots of reasons. Um, you know, Father, Lord, etc. And um, we have to acknowledge, though, that there are so many different metaphors found in the Bible, found in sacred texts that also help us think about God. God is described as a mother hen, a potter. God is described as a lamb, as a vine, as a woman in labor. God is described as, of course, um, you know, a midwife, mm -hmm. a high tower, a fortress. There are all these different metaphors. And um, I, I'm interested in playing with those a little bit. And, and that's how I moved to the place in the introduction that you're referring to when I remember this song that I learned at my Episcopal summer camp when I was a kid and later a counselor. And, you know, it sort of just sort of glossed over when I was a kid and when I was a, a teenager and a college student, but it came back to me. And the metaphor is God is a surprise in the song. And the song, um, I don't know if your listeners know it, but it was written by Reverend Harry Pritchett, who is a, was an Episcopal priest and a bishop. God is a surprise. It's baffling to the wise. Um, so much of the way Christians are talked about in media and in our world, I think we, I think the brand is in trouble. I'll be honest mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the brand is in trouble. It, it, Anne Lamott said it's mortifying to be a Christian except for the Jesus part. <laughs> and that, that sort of resonates with me. I mean, sometimes it seems like all that we're hearing is, you know, Christians want to exclude trans kids or Christians want to reinforce patriarchal cultural, patriarchal culture or whatever. And I mean, this idea of Christians being certain about everything is very, very much in the culture. And, and it's not wrong. I mean, I think there are a lot of 
a lot of Christians who want to say, this is what you must believe. These are the words you must say. And, and that is alienating to a lot of people. Yeah. I've been teaching uh, for a long time and I've watched a lot of people walk away as young, you know, 20 somethings from the Christian tradition because everything feels too certain and they don't feel certain. And so they mm-hmm. feel like they don't belong. And so I wanted to write a book long way around to this, but mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book that was more of an invitation and less of a thou shalt believe this mm-hmm. more of an invitation to the idea that our expectations could be upended by conceiving of God as a surprise, not this, um, Lord King, who was going to tell us everything that we must know and believe forever and ever. But um, what if we think about things in a more vulnerable way, borrowing from some language, I think that Brene Brown has really helped us um, understand in our culture, especially in academic culture, that a posture of vulnerability, a posture of openness can crack things open in our relationships, in our work lives. And so a posture of vulnerability and open-heartedness, tenderness, gentleness, curiosity. These are the things that really feel more genuine to me as I reflect on uh, what a faithful life looks like. And so I wanted to kind of make a syllabus of 52 weeks for families, friends, et cetera, to play with those metaphors, translate them into concrete actions, concrete things you can do with your hands and with the people that you love to get at a more of an awe-filled faith, mm-hmm. awe-filled faith, as opposed to a faith that is so certain. Yeah, your book is, um, you know, I don't really ever sense any shoulds in your book, you know, that you should do something a certain way. It's there's, you said invitation, and it really is um, an invitation to explore um, the the joy of being connected with, with God. The expression, I, I think it, um, I, I'm going to get it wrong, but there's an expression in the Episcopal tradition that informs so much of the way that I think, and it's going to be very ironic if I get it wrong, but I'm going to do my best here. Go for it. All may, some should, none must. Hmm. I think that really sums up a lot of the posture I'm trying to take in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All may, some should, none must. That comes through. So you you reference the liturgical calendar throughout the book as part of this 52-week journey. Can you tell me a little bit more about how the liturgical calendar impacts your own spiritual practices and maybe just offer a brief explanation for those listeners who might not be very familiar with the, the liturgical sure. calendar? Absolutely. So the liturgical calendar is a way of organizing time in the Christian tradition. And um, the liturgical calendar begins with Advent. And then, of course, you move into the season of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas. Um, Epiphany is a time to, um, you know, consider light. And, um, you know, it's it's marking um, 
the the visit from the the magi mm-hmm. and marking the light, and then you move into the season of Lent. Um, although there's a little slice of ordinary time that um, the Roman Catholics kind of have in between there, but move into Lent. Lent is a time, of course, to um, sort of soberly you know, think deeply about the transformation that is to come through the mystery of Eastertide. And then, then we have Pentecost, the season of Pentecost, um, going out into the world and the role of the Holy Spirit and how God's presence is moving through the world now. And then there's this long season of ordinary time or the green season. And so Christians have used these liturgical seasons to kind of organize time and orient us to where we are in the story. Um, And I find the Christian liturgical seasons to be very grounding for me. And um, of course they, they, play on to the calendar year, the the seasons of the earth, the cycles of the earth. And in the book, um, I've I've worked really hard in the book to organize the chapters around the months of the year, along with um interview along with uh fusing in um the liturgical seasons and specific ways we can mark the seasons and um you know all these different moods and prayers and practices that are associated with the seasons, both the liturgical calendar and the calendar of the year, calendar of the earth. And I think the liturgical calendar really invites us to consider one of the key themes of the book, which is that time is sacred. Hmm. Time reflects the life of the church, the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, as well as these patterns that we find in our natural world. Patterns of planting, harvesting, coming back to life, being reanimated, and lingering in this this greenness, this long season of greenness. Well, we are, although we're recording this in Advent, we are planning to release this podcast in mid-January. And I wonder if you might like to walk us through one of the chapters for January or February so that our listeners can get a taste of what kinds of things you suggest, the thoughts and prayers and actions and suggestions. Absolutely. I would be delighted to. So um, the week three is devoted to an action, and it might be an action that might surprise people. It's the action of wrestling. Mm-hmm. And I think um, this verb, I don't know what this verb conjures up for you. But it might conjure up a vision of your kids rolling around on the floor. That's immediately what I get. Or my two little boys rolling around on the floor, halfway fighting, you know, halfway laughing. Um, I also think about Genesis. I think about Jacob wrestling with God and receiving a blessing when morning comes after a long night of struggle. So in this chapter, I walk through that word wrestling and how to wonder is a kind of wrestling. It's good when we come to the table with the people that we love and we resolve that we're going to wrestle together. We're going to bring our doubts to the table. We're going to bring our questions and our complex feelings. And we're not going to hold back because we're afraid that it might offend someone or 
it might be outside the lines of belief um, or that we need to appear to be certain um, and not wrestle. And so then I write about someone who modeled this so beautifully throughout her life and her presence and her teaching. And that is Rachel Held Evans, who I believe your audience will be um, quite familiar with. Rachel Held Evans wrote so eloquently about her own spiritual journey. And she often wrestled openly and often wrestled publicly with herself and with others by asking big questions, wise questions, genuine questions about the systems and the structures that represent faith. And I think her witness in this world was so powerful and just terribly too short Mm -hmm. to mourn her loss. Uh, But she pointed out so wisely that God asks us to love with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our bodies. And doesn't, God doesn't demand that we suspend our critical thinking the moment that um, power structures or systems are challenged. And so I, um, I, I didn't ever really know her. We had some private messages on Twitter and I wish that I'd known her. We actually grew up not very far away from each other. I was from Men County and she was from Ray County, Tennessee. And we like our football teams played each other. And so, you know, I hope that maybe there was some moment when we were in the same space at the same time, but I, I just feel very connected to her. I've assigned her books um, in my classes and, you know, I, I really followed, followed her on Twitter very closely. So I appreciated her candor and she just really embodies this idea of wrestling to me. And I think the legacy that she left us embodies wrestling so well. So in this week, you know, I, I talk about, I reflect on Rachel's legacy and I reflect on the idea of um, how two truths can be held at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can hold joy in one hand and grief in the other hand. Um, paradox is is part of life. And I think that wrestling certainly, um, you know, helps us think about how paradox is, is a reality in life. So after kind of reflecting on this, the, the nature of wrestling, I invite everyone to wonder about one thing that you're really struggling to understand, one ideal you're grappling with, one thing you wish you could believe, but you're not quite there. And um, the theme of January is transcending dualities. And so I want you to wrestle and think about how that one thing that you're struggling with, is it connected to dualistic thinking, either or kinds of thinking? And um, what if you dwell in unknowing for a bit, as opposed to trying to figure it out? And so wondering together with with yourself or with the people that you're gathering with about um, dualistic thinking and about how something that you're wrestling with might be connected to dualistic thinking. That's the wonder moment for the week. And then the specific activity or the thing I'm asking you to try is very simple. Something you can do with your family or something you can do with your little group. If you're meeting for lunch around the the conference room table in the department or whatever, 
Um, and that's just to find some sort of object that embodies that thing you're wrestling with or embodies um, um, something that holds two truths or two feelings at once. So it could be a picture of someone you love. My own dear, dear grandmother just died a few weeks ago. And mm -hmm. so when I look at her picture, I feel delight and joy and gratitude. And I also feel deep loss at the same time. I, mm -hmm. I, I feel all those things at once. I'm wrestling with grief in that way. Um, so find something tangible like my grandmother's picture and show it to your group and say, this embodies wrestling for me. And just kind of talk about that. And then I, I have a prayer and I have some, um, just I think very illuminating words from the Tao Te Ching um, that can help us think about paradox. So I, I'm happy to read that if you'd like me to as a conclusion. Sure. Yeah. So I wrote the prayer and then so I'll, the prayer is for me. And then the concluding words are from the Tao Te Ching. May this family or this group, may these friends forever be a safe harbor where we can bring our anger, our hard questions, our doubts, our contradictions, and our silences. May we forever be a sanctuary where we know that faith and doubt are not opposites. May this family be made up of loving, critical thinkers who embrace the shades of gray when it might be easier to just see things in black and white. May we wrestle openly together with all the respect and kindness we can muster. Sometimes the path is hard and rocky, so help us, O oh Divine Spirit, to walk in the way of love as honestly and openly as we can. We reflect on paradox. Water wears away rock. Spirit overcomes force. The weak will undo the mighty. May we learn to see things backwards, inside out, and upside down. That's beautiful. I love the way you, in as you have designed this devotional, you have these really accessible ways to connect with your community and to do something physical, to take the, the rich ideas that you're offering out of just staying inside our own heads or our own hearts, but expressing them and connecting with one another. Um, and one of the things that I noticed and that I really liked, you have your devotionals feature a recipe or a project often as part of the practice. And I'm just naturally drawn to this kind of thing, but I can also imagine that seeing a time consuming craft described in the chapters might feel kind of oppressive to listeners who feel very busy. So what would you say to them about those elements? Well, it's not required. Certainly you don't have to do it. Um, you know, all may, some, you know, all, what is it? All may, some must, none. Ah. All may, all may, some should. Should. That's what none you said. Must, right? 
Um, You don't have to make the comfrey salve or the candles or the the Lenten, easy Lenten soup. Although we do all have to eat something. We do. And the recipes are generally really easy, especially during Lent. So, um, but I think I love to make stuff. Um, I thought about like, maybe that should be my, my little biography on Instagram, Bonnie Smith, White House. I like to make stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You get to say like three words to three or four words to describe yourself. I love um, to do things with my hands and I feel like it connects me to creation. All of the crafts and the recipes are really not expensive, not fancy, um, but things that I think connect us to earth and connect us to one another. And so um, I would invite you to just maybe give give something a try. You know, uh, making a rosary may sound like not something that you've ever imagined that you would do, but there is something very primal about touching a bead. Mm-hmm. People, human beings have been doing stuff with beads for a long time. And, um, you know, I think it's worth experimenting with how that might feel to you to have your have your hands engaged in touching a beautiful bead that feels really good while you're saying your prayers. Um, so, you know, maybe give it, give it a try or just not do that part or maybe come back to it in a few years. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at this book and you've got babies and all you want to do in your free time is go to sleep or watch uh, the great British baking show, then do that. <laughs> and then maybe when the babies are, you know, seven, eight, nine, you might try to make cookies for the birds um, and honor St. Francis. Um, but certainly if, if that's not something that you feel called to in this moment in your life, then skip it. That sounds wise. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that is really kind of the, the, the next um, question I wanted to ask. I was just thinking about women in academic and professional contexts who are mostly the, these are our listeners and how they can use this book. Um, and I think, I mean, I do hear you saying that it really can be an invitation to richness rather than another thing to do. I I wanted to ask too, have you ever used any of these ideas in your own classroom? Absolutely. Um, in different ways, but absolutely. So one of the things I've talked about, I'm teaching a, a senior, I just finished teaching a course with my seniors in the honors program at Belmont. And I've talked to them about how so much of life is being alienated from mystery. Mm. And I invite them, I invited them to pull up the images from the James Webb telescope. Have you been, if you've been following this, Re- yeah, recently, yeah. Unbelievable. Amazing. The images um, from the Carina Nebula. And I asked them, pull, the, pull those images up on your phone. And I want you to just stare at them while I'm talking to you. Just look mm. at them. Because what you're looking at is a stellar nursery or, you know, this, this sort of birthplace of stars. Stars are born and they grow older and they die. They're just like you and just like me. And look at those images and allow yourself to gasp in wonder and think about how something that formed 13.5 billion years ago is, this is the light that you're beholding as you look at your little smartphone. And 
It just, it's, it's a shift in perspective to me. And it's this way of summoning the past and the present and the future all together. And so then I would read them a few lines from Walt Whitman. It's a great poem about the tension between academic life and being part of a mystical kind of experience on earth. So it, the poem is called, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. And so I'm having my students, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon in Nashville, Tennessee, look at their phones and just listen to me read the short poem. Mm -hmm. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room. How soon unaccountable, I became tired and sick till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. What a wonderful, I think what a wonderful yeah. thing to do on Epiphany. And hopefully, you know, your listeners will be um, listening to this around, you know, somewhere around Epiphany. Mm -hmm. But what if you mark the the day um, with a moment of wonder and go out um, and look at the sky or even just pull up the Carina Nebula on your phone and imagine the light in the sky and how those magi were gazing at the same stars. And, you know, feel that mystical sense of communion. We are just alienated from that so much in life. And, you know, we're, we're stuck in um, modes of learning, like the ones that, that Whitman describes in the poem that just feel um, sort of flat. And I, you know, I, I want to find ways to jar myself out of that and jar my, my kids and my students and, um, you know, my readers out of that alienation from time to time, as Whitman says. <laughs> well, you've created a wonderful handbook for for that. And I'm grateful that it's in the world now. Thank you. Thank you. So as we, as we wrap up, why don't you tell us how listeners can follow you and your work and what's on the horizon for you coming sure. up? Sure. Well, you can follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on my website, which is bonniesmithwhitehouse.com. And I am beginning to build a little infrequent newsletter. So feel free to subscribe there. Um, I'm also um, in the future, I'm, I'm hoping to work on some of the work that I mentioned in the beginning with regard to images of God and how our images of God are always provisional. They're always inadequate. Um, you know, I, I want to ask myself and ask others, what is this image of God that I'm bringing to my imagination? And how can I learn from other images um, that we've, that, that maybe time and space and textual uh, sort of work can help us understand? Sometimes I think it's good that images can be set aside Um so that we can find new ones that can help us imagine God in, in new ways. 
I am really interested in learning more about the divine feminine. Some of your readers may be um, familiar with the recent scholarship of Elizabeth Schrader. She did some great textual work on the role of Mary Magdalene and how translation, specifically John, the translation of John has um, probably downplayed the role of Mary Magdalene. So I'm interested in um, diving into some of that scholarship. I'm also very deeply committed to and interested in interfaith learning and dialogue, especially with regard to Buddhism and Judaism. So those are some areas that I expect to be diving into a bit more in the coming years. We're releasing this episode in mid-January. And in my mind, it's the perfect time to pick up a copy of Bonnie's book and treat it as a guide for inspired connections with God in 2023. Personally, I'm looking forward to using it during Lent. It's a season that often feels difficult for me, and I think Bonnie's invitational writing style will be just what I need for Lent this year. And as I mentioned before, if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll hear a little bonus from our interview in which Bonnie offers sound advice for parents with young children. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my interview with Bonnie. I wanted to ask um, specifically to about your family life. I, I know that you have several children. How did you manage, especially those days when, you know, newborns and toddlers, how did, how did that, um, I know that that is a question that comes up a lot for women in our audience, um, how to, how to manage all of the, the, the time intensive stress of raising young children while also pursuing a tenure track job. Very, very hard. Mm -hmm. I have two sons. Um, it feels like several, but it's two. Okay, it's just two. <laughs> and I was actually tenured when I had them. Wow. So that may be a little bit different from your audience, from many people in your audience. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know how much of a difference it makes, but, um, you know, I will say it, it's very difficult to find the childcare um, aspect to figure out how to balance having babies in particular and nursing um, when you're teaching and you're trying to advise students and you're going to committee meetings and, you know, going into your office and putting a piece of paper over the window and the door so you can pump. Um, I did all that stuff for mm -hmm. years and um, it was hard. And I, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't offer a recipe for how it could be done except to say that 
I think we have to say out loud that it's hard. Mm-hmm. I think we have to get on those committees, those faculty senate committees that have to do with work-life balance. I think we have to argue and get our male colleagues to argue for spaces on campus to pump and nurse. I think we have to just say these hard things out loud and find very specific strategic ways to work them into policy. And um, I hope that resonates with your with your listeners, but get on those committees, get your male colleagues to get on those committees and encourage them to advocate for policies that support mothers and fathers and all, all parents of all kinds as we are trying to juggle and, you know, do this incredibly important, vitally, you know, vital work of parenting. Um, we're going to be better professors. We're going to be better colleagues. We're going to be better writers if we are supported in our roles as parents. So don't be afraid to get on the committees and, and make noise. <laughs>